Welcome to Weird Sauce, a podcast about formulas. In these conversations, I intend to rethink with you the rhythms of our lives. From the exceptional to the routine, I wander into the patterns, the alchemy of experiences, good and bad, from scientists to high achievers. Life is not a long, quiet river, so follow me upstream into the extraordinary, the storms, the mishaps, the components that may inspire you today and tomorrow. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice. Your health is your responsibility and that of your physician. Always seek advice from your physician before choosing any lifestyle interventions you may have heard in this podcast. Professor Marfet, thank you very much for welcoming us today in your location. I believe it's somewhere in Europe, in Austria. Am I right? You are, indeed. Just outside of Salzburg. And could you please introduce yourself for our audience? Yes, of course. Uh, I'm Malcolm Murphitt. I'm a professor of contemporary history at uh, the Department of War Studies in King's College, London. Um, I'm sheltering here from COVID uh, in Austria and have been here for the last uh, 14 months. Um, I left London uh, as my students left uh, London as well for their families and I disappeared before the great lockdown um, uh, came not only over the university but everywhere else. Um, I've been, uh, I was born in Britain um, vast numbers of years ago uh, and um, I lived uh, there until um, 1980 when I went to um, Southeast Asia and um, and then Australia and Canada and 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 now uh, Austria and and back to London. Um, I um, yeah I am somebody who came up a very untraditional way uh, to university, uh, but I've had the most fantastic uh, life since I I found myself. I was far 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 too much involved with sport to begin with. I've been blessed with having some talent in this area, um, but of course I always got the balance wrong. I I played down the, the sporting route rather than the academic route, and the consequence was that at 16 I had one O level. And quite frankly, you can do nothing with one O level. So I, I found myself going into a carpet store in Oxford uh, as a carpet buyer. It was complete nonsense. It was never buying anything. I was merely selling. But I was selling to individuals who were linked to the university. It was very interesting. Um, and I got on very well with these people and they seemed to like me. And so I would go uh, along with the carpet fitters to places like All Souls and St. Peter's College and, and various other uh, colleges from the university and saw these this other world. I mean, I'm a country boy from North Berkshire. I mean, I, I come from a, uh, a village of native tribal people. I mean, for, for the people in my village, 800 souls, white, Anglo-Saxon, Protestant, the Catholics were a threat, let alone, you know, African-Americans, no chance of seeing them. Uh, Asians, what? Of course not. Um, and so this terrible, 
sense of the enemy living just a mile and a half away in the next village very much came home to me. I, I disliked it from the outset. I felt that this was not where it should be. We were only 13 miles from Oxford, for God's sake, but it may it, we could have been 13 million miles away from Oxford. Virtually nobody had cars. My parents were um, solid working class people. My dad, a bus driver, my mum, the equivalent of being an armour or domestic help to others. Uh, very little money, um, but um, great amounts of love, which was the key and the rock, really, upon which a great deal of my self-confidence, of which there was a large amount, I'm afraid, um, was was based. Um, but um, so going to this carpet store, going to Oxford University, well, going to the Oxford University colleges to lay carpets, I thought to myself, you know, you really, you've got to do something now. You've really got to work um, because you've given yourself up to sport. And I was fortunate enough, I played at the school's junior Wimbledon championships on the grass courts of, of Wimbledon uh, when I was 16, but I had one O-level to show for it. I mean, you know, it's pathetic. Uh, the most embarrassing uh, experience of my life was going to this party after the results were announced. I don't know why I went. Um, but I, I saw all these other people, and, and many of them I thought were really thick, uh, and <laughs> they completely outperformed me. Um, and so this was a humiliation for me. Uh, I'm not a humble person, uh, uh, by and large, <laughs> but this made me feel very humble indeed. Uh, it was good for me because it meant that you couldn't just rely on a particular aspect of talent. You had to also work uh, as well. So I went to night school, post tuition uh, and so forth. And, you know, I managed then to do really well in all of these things. And so from one O level, uh, I went up to eight. Uh, and then I decided, look, I think I really need to um, go to a college of further education, which I went to in Abingdon, and do some A-levels. And this was the first group of of kids that uh, second second chances, really, uh, people who screwed up the first time and and who were now looking to try to to repair a great hole in in their educational lives. I went there, it was the most fantastic eight months of my life uh, in terms of education. The best teachers I have had in all of my life were there. Uh, one guy who now is dead, sadly, Leslie Holmes, was wonderful. He taught me econs uh, and I, I love that man. I do. Uh, he was so inspirational. He forced me to do things like writing timed essays in class, which I used to hate, uh, but it was the making of me in many respects. Uh, so whenever anybody says to me, who was the best teacher you ever had? I would say unquestionably, Leslie Holmes. Um, and God bless you, my friend. I hope you're doing well up there. Um, so um, for me, uh, I, I, I had wonderful experience. Uh, I did incredibly well um, and was the top scholar of the, the college. And suddenly, uh, you know, I thought, well, what have 
I always wanted to do. I've always wanted to teach, right? I taught at Sunday school and this kind of thing. Um, but um, I thought, well, so I'll go to a teacher training college. And the people to one, as it were, at the college said, no, you're not going to a, uh, a teacher training college. You're going to university. I said, but I, you know, nobody on either side of our family had been to university. There's only one person from the entire village who's ever been there before. Uh, and uh, they said, no, you apply. So, you know, I, I thought, well, gracious, I know nothing about this this game. And uh, so I, I, I ranked all the universities together, which of course was really very stupid. Uh, and suddenly, <laughs> went to all of these these places, had marvellous interviews. I have to say it was tremendous and got a whole raft of, of very acceptable um, offers. And one at the University of Kiel, which incidentally at the same time was known as the Kremlin on the Hill uh, in, in, in Staffordshire, just outside Stoke-on-Trent and Newcastle under Lyme. Kiel, uh, the man and I, spoke at great length. We were supposed to have been 20 minutes. It was like 40 or so. And I saw him writing onto his um, form next to my name, you. I thought, oh, damn it. Uh, it's unacceptable. And he said, I'm going to give you an unconditional offer. I said, what? He said, yeah, you don't have to get A-levels. We'll have you anyway. And when I went back to Abingdon and I said, and they said, so how, how did it go at Kiel? I said, well, I've got an unconditional offer. And they said, they don't exist. Well, they didn't back then. <laughs> Apparently, this was a new, a new one-off. Anyway, so I went there because, I mean, I, I love the idea of a foundation year where you did all kinds of things like Russian literature, you know, chemistry and things like this. I, I'm a historian, a political scientist and so forth. So, so, so let's, let's just advance. So you managed to get yourself modestly um, from a very tough uh, startup to a very prestigious institution, which you haven't mentioned yet <laughs> in your academic prowess. And uh, tell us a little, bit more, a little bit more how you got your PhD. And then we'll start talking about uh, you know, the, the years that you, we have all gone through in this past year and a half, because you and I go back to Singapore, so you're very familiar with Singapore, um, and your experience with COVID-19 might be very well different than our experience here in uh, in Singapore. Yeah, uh, Florence, uh, excuse me, I, I love talking about myself, so therefore it's, it's quite clear I've gone on far too long, uh, and all kinds of warning signs are coming, say, for goodness sake, <laughs> and you don't need to nod, I can see. Um, and and so, yeah, uh, I I went from Kiel to Leeds and from Leeds to Oxford, and that was a, a, a fantastic experience. And it was really most unusual because the people that I sold carpets to uh, less than 10 years before now saw me doing a PhD or DPhil, as it is in Oxford at the university. They were enchanted i think and <laughs> and surprised um but um huge, it was it was a marvelous experience and and at oxford uh wonderful things happened to me i mean 
sporting wise yes i became an oxford blue which was in those years uh was far more important than getting a degree <laughs> and uh and that was great and wonderful playing on lords cricket ground was terrific playing for oxford against cambridge terrific experience um but then um i also as a result of being at oxford um i got this incredible opportunity um Winston Churchill um, died, left 10 tons of, of uh, written material in 110 filing cabinets. Um, those filing cabinets were placed on L floor, many floors below Broad Street in Oxford, um, whilst um, Martin Gilbert, who was the research assistant for Randolph Churchill, uh, went through them. Uh, but the Charter trustees, who were the literary executors of of Churchill's estate wanted a one-off single uh, uh, volume life of Churchill and they uh, commissioned Lord Birkenhead who was the son of F.E. Smith who was Churchill's greatest friend uh, or arguably his greatest friend to do the uh, one volume work. Unfortunately Lord Birkenhead contracted throat cancer and also um, had uh, was involved in a traffic accident so couldn't get into the Bodleian and I don't really see Lord Birkenhead being down in the bowels of the Bodleian for very long in any case. Um, Lord Birkenhead then decided that he, he would address his friends who are the high and mighty at the, the university in the area of history and ask um, for nominees who they might suggest should do this work for him. Uh, Lord Blake from Queen's was made the, the, the chairman of this search committee and, and um, my name was mentioned by two uh, of the academics that uh, I was involved with, Professor Norman Gibbs from All Souls and, and Professor Herbert Nicholas who really was a, an amazing character uh, from New College and um, um, the final two, one of which was me, were sent out to see Lord Birkenhead north of Oxford, um, just a little bit south of Banbury, in this roaming um, <laughs> estate of his. Um, and uh, with, a, with a lunch table with so many pieces of cutlery on it uh, that you just could not imagine. What on earth do I use first? Uh, in all of this stuff, um, but Birkenhead liked me, and um, whether I got it on the basis that I was the best of the two, or whether it was because he liked the fact that I was an Oxford Blue, I don't know. But anyway, I got the job, and this meant that I had this fantastic opportunity. The Churchill Archive was closed to the world. There were only two people who were allowed to see it. One was Birkenhead, but then since Birkenhead couldn't get to see it, it was me. And the other was Randolph Churchill, but then he died and Martin Gilbert was given the job to write the companion volumes of which there were two or three from each major volume that he, uh, he produced. And so I had this phenomenal opportunity of being working on the Churchill papers uh, closed to the rest of the world and I loved it and it delayed my PhD but 
who cared? I mean, this was far, far, far too important uh, a, a project to ignore. So it was wonderful. It was an absolutely wonderful experience. I loved Oxford, um, but I'd loved all of my uh, university career. And it was so different. It was almost as though I'd had a second life, uh, a, an ordinary life up to 69 uh, from 48. So I was 21. Uh, and then this completely different life from 69 onwards. Well, Malcolm, I remember um, seeing one of your lecture at the National University of Singapore once and attending it as, a, as effectively an auditor. Uh, it was wonderful. And I remember how lively your lecture uh, was and how engaged you were with the subject. So to bring us back to 2021... And knowing that uh, you're obviously not in King's, as you said in the entrance, and knowing that you are now sitting in Austria and I'm in Singapore, and we've only seen each other through uh, Zoom or versions of that. So tell us about how is this past year and a half now has been for you as a professor that loves engagement so much and delivers lectures that are so and passionate and personal and tell us more about what you've seen for yourself and for your students perhaps certainly um well as i as i said in the intro um i left town that's london uh when everybody else was leaving town and even before the university closed down but i i kind of preempted it by two or three days and got out on the penultimate plane out of uh, gatwick uh for salzburg uh mid-march about the 13th of March last year. Um, so um, the first question was, of course, um, how do we now finish the course? Um, and what do we do about exams? And um, uh, they'll obviously have to be take home exams or, um, you know, what about any other assignments that haven't yet been submitted? Well, I, I, felt over a long period of time um, two main things which uh, I, I feel we don't make a, enough use of at the university. First of all, one, and you'll cringe at this perhaps, but why, uh, are multiple choice question papers. It's really interesting because, you, you know, if you ask a, a, a student to do an essay, they can produce an essay yes but it's on a relative usually a relatively confined uh, subject or topic um, and whereas the multiple choice paper goes over the entire subject from first to last so it requires them to actually have some memory yes but you can't just eliminate the memory and say oh well it's just rote learning no it's not just about rote learning. In order to get to analysis, you need to know what the hell went on. And, and I, I get very angry with people who say, oh, but you don't need the factual stuff. You do need a certain amount of factual stuff. Yes, you do. And we've seen in the Brexit campaign how the lack of fact or the alt fact, the lies, the fabrications, uh, were very effective. That's the point. Uh, so I think you do need to have some knowledge and you need to build on it. 
you only can get to stage two of the learning process if you actually know what the hell happened and when it happened. Then you can start analysing why it happened. And the most important question in history is why. It's surely the, the question that, that launched the Enlightenment uh, so many years ago. Why is crucial. But you can't, it can't be just done on its own. It needs also to know about the when and the how as well. So uh, multiple choice question papers had to be devised in such a way that all of the students had to have them at the same time so that they couldn't be phoning one another or using, you know, their, uh, the, the, the Google search function to, uh, to find the answers. So this, I, I work very closely with uh, Nagis, uh, this wonderful uh, lady at, uh, at King's in the War Studies Department, and we devised this um, uh, exam. I mean, I did the questions, but she did the technology. As you can see uh, this morning, I am really quite uh, deficient when it comes to technology. Um, but it, was, it went wonderfully and went off without a hitch. The, um, the exams were done uh, without uh, any uh, problems at all as well, thanks to the work behind the scenes of uh, our office staff, who are fantastic, who never get any plaudits at all, but who do so much to help. Let me, let me go on to say that uh, the, uh, the situation thereafter was going to be really difficult. I mean, how were we going to have any actual students back on campus in the autumn or not? Uh, and we were wrestling with this. The senior leadership team, of which I am not a member, I'm far too old for that, uh, um, were wrestling with the idea of, well, should we do everything online? Well, converting to online is really difficult if you haven't done it before. But that was what actually happened. But interestingly enough, I had an offer uh, from the University of Trento in northern Italy to go as a visiting professor to launch a master's course that they'd not run before, but which they very much wanted to, uh, to run uh, on naval history. Now, I've written a, a large book on this particular subject, and so they offered me the opportunity of going. And since we were in somewhat in disarray, it has to be said, uh, at King's, not quite knowing where we, what we were doing and so forth, I went to Trento and had the most fantastic two months. And interestingly enough, I had both uh, students in class with me and students online. And it's really difficult to have both of them simultaneously uh, because your eyes go out from your lectern, as it were, or from your desk. And I, I walk a lot. Um, so this is a very unusual experience, me sitting down like this. Um, and I can see the students in sitting in the seats in front of me. It's very difficult to keep my eye on them and on my students on my right-hand column on Zoom, which was how we did it. Um, but interestingly, in Italy, many students are working as well. And so they can't get physically in, whether it's it's not a question of COVID, it's because they're working. So 
This kind of treatment of online and live is something which will continue. Uh, and it may well continue. Uh, it's certainly going to continue this autumn because I'm going back uh, to Trento for another two months. Um, but it may also continue um, at King's too uh, with lectures. Um, in certain disciplines, um, sciences, medicine and so forth, where you need lab work and, and, and that kind of thing, it's a different matter. I think students may well be brought in to have live sessions. For the social sciences, the humanities, like history, philosophy, uh, English and so forth, um, political science, I think we're still likely to be uh, online for the next few months. I, I would say the autumn term more likely to be online rather than totally live. Maybe a few tutorial sessions. I don't know. Uh, I'm not speaking out of turn because the, the decision's not made uh, as yet. But it, if I was a betting man, which I'm not, I think I would put some money on an online performance up to Christmas in the hope that the vaccination campaign will have been such that um, we may be able to engage uh, in live sessions from January onwards. How would you describe the, from your feeling of having been a professor for so long, so I think you, you probably have a very good understanding of um, how your students are, what they're feeling, the way that they're learning. Um, how would you say the experience for them uh, given maybe some people have reached out to you as being, and how do you how do you see education going forward um, with this distance and this technology that's embedded? Yeah, uh, uh, it's a very good question, Florence. Uh, I have uh, had master students uh, as uh, I, I supervise and also undergraduate final year students as well doing their dissertations, um, and a lot of my former students keep in touch with me, which is lovely, not only because they want me to write references for them, but also I think because they, they quite like to uh, to keep in touch and and, and there's a great rapport, uh, largely between uh, me and the students. I love teaching, always have done, and I've been blessed by being able to do it for over 40 years. Um, now, I think the real problem uh, is that several things. One, do the students or their parents have adequate technology? Can they therefore benefit from the online experience as much as those who've got really ultra sophisticated, ultra fast uh, Wi-Fi uh, at home? Two, not everybody copes adequately on their own. They need interaction with other students. And this is a real problem. I think mental health issues, I'm not saying any of mine uh, had any of that, thank God, um, but many people have. I would say the student health services have, been, have certainly found themselves uh, under greater pressure. I think a lot of people uh, can get very depressed, uh, very lonely, uh, and 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 ultra concerned and worried about 
you know how they are they 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 can't see the, the whites of other people's eyes they're not sitting in a class where they can tell that others are also um freaking out um it's it's very difficult i think uh so the mental health issues are very considerable uh i don't think we we imagined they would be to quite the extent that they are let me just say uh, however that um, when I started uh, back in Singapore as, a, as the most junior lecturer of the lot uh, on the 11th of July 1980, uh, very rarely would you get uh, students with some form of personality disorder, uh, some challenge uh, uh, that they uh, present and so forth. You very rarely see it. These days, it is very unusual if you don't have maybe as many as half a dozen students in a class that have particular issues, either pressure uh, or some form of uh, personality uh, difficulty which means that they can't really interact in quite the way that uh, others can, don't want to sit with others, don't want to be involved in, in tutorials with others. Uh, it makes it very, it's, it must be incredibly difficult for them. It makes it much more challenging also for the teacher as well. Um, so while I think online teaching is great in various ways and i think the online webinar experience has been fantastic um, because you don't have to be at lse to hear something wonderful or at king's or uh, you know wherever um in london or anywhere in the world i mean i i tune into the wilson center uh in in, in washington dc uh, on a weekly basis and and a lot of other and obviously RSIS and LKY uh, School of Public Policy and other things uh, in Singapore too because there are great people uh, out there and um, it's wonderful to, to listen and learn uh, from them um, so if you've got the technology it's great um, working on a subject on your own yeah uh, that's challenging it really is. It really is. Because I'm a per people's person. I mean, I need to be engaged with other people. I find it very odd and diff difficult and, well, disconcerting, not difficult, but disconcerting to be on my own. I mean, why? I mean, that's, that's so not me. Um, but many people are forced into this situation. And, and I have concern for them. I also recognize those students who, for example, if there's a art student, uh, maybe uh, say something like the New School in, in New York, for example, I, I, I know somebody who is there, who uh, is now uh, in Singapore um, with great um, situation for them in Singapore, but they can't do everything that they would normally do at the new school. And so in that situation, maybe they can function at 88%, but not necessarily at 100%. So uh, with, the, uh, with the reduction 
uh, of limitations and so forth towards COVID as, as the vaccination uh, rollout goes on, um, I think it, you know, then it offers the prospect of those who are, who are somewhat out beyond their control, uh, not functioning as, as effectively as they could, being able to do something about it. Um, so I think it's, it's two-sided, like all things. Um, I think uh, we have learned a lot, in, in, but the teaching of online stuff, you can't just turn up and just talk for two hours. You can't. It's got to be broken up. You've got to be thinking about, okay, how do I actively engage with these kids? You know, make it much more interactive uh, and punchier. You can't drone on. It's not, I mean, I have been droning on for the last God knows how long now in this interview, but, but you, you're not meant to. <laughs> it's meant to be broken up. Indeed. So um, an, another aspect of this, I think, so in Singapore, we've been somehow, uh, we've only gone through one hard lockdown. Uh, it was well controlled. It had very good effect immediately. And, and being Singapore, of course, things are under control and managed. Um, the children have had uh, live schooling now back for a few months, um, although special activities are, are suppressed. And now, unfortunately, with the new uh, variant coming out, we are kind of going backwards and, and, and uh, kind of making sure that this doesn't go out of control. So it reads to me as an up and down uh, in terms of um, how we're going to ever come out of this. And it won't be linear. It won't be once and for all. I think it, it's here to stay in some form or another. So... My question is then, to cope with this, um, you and I know each other quite well, so we understand each other's lifestyle coping mechanism. I'm very interested in having you share with uh, our audience, what is it that you've done um, to make yourself go through this? Because you've been on lockdown probably more severely than uh, other people, and you and you were accidentally, I heard, in Austria, or you you decided to be in Austria, and then and that's where it, it ended at, at some point. So, share with us what is it that your life, um, how your life changed from being a king's and to being in Austria? Yeah, certainly. Well, one of the key things it seemed to me was that I had the opportunity of staying in Balham in South London and being confined to an <laughs> upstairs bedroom slash attic. Or coming home to my house just 10 kilometers south of Salzburg and having the roam of the countryside. I mean, it's a no brainer. I mean, of course I had to come back. What I've done, uh, Florence, is uh, about two years, two and a bit years, two and a quarter years ago now, uh, my daughter, who is uh, a medic, um, had heard from her friend, who is also a, a consultant, well, my, my daughter's a, a registrar, senior registrar, but uh, will be a consultant, I think, if, if there's any justice in the world uh, soon enough. Um, but uh, Kate, her friend, who is a magnificent doctor, ONG specialist, marvellous creature, um, Kate said to uh, Cassie, my daughter, Carolina, but we call her Cassie, um, you know, I'm going. I'm. I'm thinking of going on some um, dieting program. And Cassie said, "Well, what kind of dieting program?" And, and 
and Kate said, "Well, I'm I'm going to I'm I'm going to do this properly. I'm going to look through the, the system, see what what things work, and so forth." And she came up with the alternate fasting system, the 16 hours of fasting, and and so forth. And and because she is who she is, because she's so sensible and so bright and so forth, Cassie also thought, okay, I'll do that too. And it's tough. And in the course of a conversation, she said to, I was talking to Cassie one night and she said, I'm going to do this from the start of the year. Gracious, 16 hours without food sounds absolutely horrendous. Um, But I said, okay, um, let's do it together. Let's try it together and see who crashes first. (laughs) I'm still doing it. That's two and a quarter uh, years later. I'm 10 kilos down, uh, fitter, probably, arguably, I think, without being stupid about it, uh, than I've been since I was at university, I've always been done a lot of sport. Now, I don't run as far as you, Florence, but uh, I run uh, just over a marathon a week. That is three lots of 15K, um, so 45K a week. I walk about 120 to 130K a week, and I bike um, when the weather allows us to, maybe 50, 60 K a week. So I'm active. Uh, I've always needed sport. I've always needed activity as a contrast to scholarly studying, working, preparation, and so forth. That's how my life gets in balance. At one stage, as I told you, it was unbalanced. It was like 90% sport, 10% anything else. Now I think that the the balance is great. Uh, I'm out every day two, two and a half hours. Um, I run for, you know, I, I, I can still run pretty decently. I can do 15, 16K in 90 minutes, um, which, is, which is pretty good for my age. Um, and um, I feel great about it. Uh, I come back, I can then sit down, I can really work really hard. Uh, and I don't have this kind of sense of, oh, I must get out, I must do something. So everyone is different, everybody is unique. Uh, one size doesn't fit all, but I honestly believe for me, I need to have change in my life. I need to be active, otherwise I'll go up the wall. Um, I don't think, you know, I know people who who work incredibly hard and are incredibly talented and bright, uh, but that's all they do. And that worries me because I worry about their general physical state. Um, I don't worry about mine because I'm doing something about it on a daily basis. So would you say that this lifestyle that you had before, because you and I from, from Singapore, I knew that this was already something you were, you were doing on a, on a regular basis. Would you say that, you know, both as a, as a mix of being lucky to be in an environment where you, were out, you had access to outdoor, which a lot of people did not, and also having that routine already in place with your intermittent fasting, 
with your focus on being out, with your focus on being physically uh, fit, would you say that this really has buffered the impact of this dramatic changes Absolutely. that we've all lived through? Absolutely. I've been so grateful. I mean, I think the one thing, and I'm, I really must stress this, is discipline. You need to be self-disciplined because if, for example, I say, okay, three times a week, I'm going to go and do this one, but then you don't do it. Come on. You need, I mean, like, for example, after this interview, I will be going running. That I can guarantee you. Um, and not because the interview has stressed me, but just simply because this is the third day I'm going. Uh, and it's pouring with rain outside and it's gray and cold and looks absolutely awful. But who cares? I'm doing it. Um, so, yes, it's buffered the COVID thing. I felt very, very, very sorry uh, for those who've, who've really had a hard time of it. I've lost several friends out of this. Two members of the extended family have gone who were in good form, and good health beforehand, and they uh, succumbed. Uh, and I've known a number of other people too, and it is very sad. And I feel for them enormously. I'm just so grateful. A, uh, I haven't contracted this thing, uh, and B, I have not been restrained in any way um, by being here. I feel incredibly blessed in that. So, Malcolm, um if we now uh, project ourselves forward uh, and before we wrap this um, this episode, I would like to have your perspective because you've studied this as well as being British yourself. So um, right now we we as in um, the world is in this stage still, and uh, Brexit, of course, is has already occurred to some extent. It will manifest itself much clearer as the months go by. So we are basically looking at the UK entering two cycles of response, one which is a cycle of economical response and political response to Brexit um, and, and whatever that comes with, and as well as still being in, a, in the middle of a pandemic that needs to be actively managed and to which maybe the vaccine will be sufficient, maybe it won't be, but anyway, it's not over. So. I would like to hear from you. What do you think this this dual um, these dual things will have as as potential impact on the UK, and whether you're imagining a bright future or a scary future or some something in between? Okay, uh, Florence, it's uh, very apt uh, that you should pose this question because yesterday I gave the first of two lectures, uh, the first one at the University of Trento on. Brexit uh, decision, a generational decision that uh, divided uh, Britain. Uh, I believe COVID does mask uh, the, the potentialities and the problems of, of um, Brexit. I do. Um, and um, I think in that regard, probably the government is very fortunate um, because if Brexit turned out to be anything like the Remain uh, camp said it was going to be, uh, and there was doom and gloom everywhere, then I'm sure 
um, that Hartlepool necessarily might not have gone to the Tories last week uh, and that the Conservatives uh, wouldn't necessarily have had such a, um, a success in the local elections. Populism uh, has been spurred um, in recent years by various issues. Um, some of them are extremely unpleasant, uh, like the attack on immigration, xenophobia, uh, and so forth. The, there is an other sense, though, uh, of this, where there's a kind of, as I, as I said, I, I speak with the knowledge of a country village where there was tribal nativism in, employed. And I would say that there were some of the members of that village who I hope are still alive, who would say, is the world, is our village any better now in the year 2021 than it was back in 1961? And I think a, an awful lot of those people would say, no, it isn't, it isn't as good. Um, and that sense of either being left behind, uh, which of course is very clear in the industrial Midlands and the North, where um, industries have collapsed, the old manufacturing industries have collapsed, um, and nothing has really taken over to, to bring forth um, you know, prospect, great prospects, economic or otherwise, uh, for the people. People who feel that they've been left behind by society, by the elite uh, down in the South, particularly around London. Uh, so I think that there are real issues in the UK. Uh, I think Brexit showed it. Brexit has revealed uh, a massive divide between what you look out to the people who wanted to remain part of Europe knew that the EU is not the finished article. It clearly needs reform. But how do you reform an institution like that? Not from the outside. From the inside, you have a much better chance of doing something about it. But we opted out of that particular uh, decision-making process. So, but for me, and um, it's pretty obvious I'm a Remainer, uh, I love the idea of a wider stage. Europe has, for me, fascination. Languages, different cultures shouldn't be seen as the other or a threat. It should be embraced. The culture of Europe, you can't, you can't surely say, that Britain alone is enough without music, without dance, without film, without, I mean, come on, please. Let's, let's be honest about this. We need Europe. To say that we don't need it is so contrived and it's so sad. And the idea of course, it was the free movement of peoples that that were sought, you know, to to be stopped. Uh, this is, of course, where UKIP, the United Kingdom Independence Party, uh, got its its great thrust from. Uh, 
its leading uh, exponent, Nigel Farage, said he wanted to link unemployment in the EU as one thing in people's minds. Well, he did, sadly, to a very great extent. So all kinds of threats like Turkey is going to join the EU, uh, that'll bring another 80 million people on board, uh, we'll have floods of these people coming in, photoshopped images of thousands of incidentally male foreigners, you know, on the shore, as it were, of, of Europe, you know, approaching Britain, you know, um, these, these kinds of things were just, they're horrendous, they're absolutely horrendous. It plays to the lowest common denominator. We shouldn't be like that. And those who, who claim to be Christian and who uh, uh, pronounce against others, I mean, have they thought about what they really believe, what the faith tells them? Come on. We have to embrace people. We need to have differences in our lives uh, and not always feel threatened by the other. Now, it's true that a lot of people, I mean, my generation, the baby boomers and those a little older, voted overwhelmingly for Brexit to get themselves out of Europe. What on earth were they thinking? What on earth were they thinking? I mean, I just, I, I find it almost inconceivable. My generation has been damn lucky to have the chances that it has had. I mean, one of the greatest things ever was, I mean, Howard Wilson, who I, you know, I didn't trust at all, uh, did do something. He introduced the Open University. And that was an opportunity for people like my dad, a bus driver, to get a degree. I mean, what? Or my mum, a domestic worker, to get a degree? Are you kidding? That kind of thing never existed before. I love the idea that, you know, we, we should do something for ourselves. Those who said, I've had one job, that's the only job I want to do, I want to stay in the mines, well, come on, do something for yourself. Don't live on welfare, do something for yourself. Get, get moving. Think about how you could retrain, but lots of people didn't want to. And then whose fault was it? Well, it's the EU. I mean, are you kidding me? Come on. I mean, structural and cyclical unemployment uh, are not just down to one uh, set, one institution. Yes, of course, you may think, you know, national sovereignty puts the, and, and, and autonomy uh, is, is something which is very crucial to, to uh, the UK. Well, it's crucial, seemingly, to the English, because the English voted Brexit in a massive way. Scotland and Northern Ireland voted to remain. Wales, about 52%. Uh, England, over 53%. And the staggering thing is that 87% of all leave votes were, were lodged in England. It says something about my country, which 
I worry about, actually. Well, I think, you know, uh, short of the, um, the the pandemic that we have right now, we have another pandemic as well, which I think is, is the pandemic of information or disinformation, which I think we all suffer from. We suffer it at the public health level. We suffer it at the <clears throat> political level. And I think that's here to stay. So to wrap up, um, I would love, like I do always with our guests, to find out what. Professor Murphy's weird sauce for life. Could you share that with our audience? Yes. Um, I always wondered about this idea of weird sauce. What do I have it? Do I do I know what can I reach out for? I think it's the lack of boredom. I think it's the the wanting to do stuff that keeps you going. My dad never hit me, I think, well, maybe once or twice in his life. Uh, back then, of course, it was much more customary that you can get belted for doing things. And I used to do lots and lots of very bad things. But my dad would send me upstairs to my bedroom. Uh, and you were going to stay up there all day and you think about this and maybe you wouldn't do it again. For example, I planted all of the corn for the chickens in the, in the garden, <laughs> which was a major problem for him. Um, but um, what I thought, well, I can't be up here for hours. Uh, and I, I don't necessarily want to read for hours on it. So I used to commentate on imaginary football matches and other athletic and other sporting uh, uh, things on my bed. I was immensely happy so that when dad sent me up to my room or mum sent me up to my room for, for maybe the rest of the day, didn't worry me at all because I could immediately uh, do a live um, telecast from Aston Villa versus Blackburn Rovers or, or some such thing. And it also... I have to say, because I was rather slow as a child and couldn't read until I was seven, uh, it also helped me to uh, spell. The school had given up on me. Uh, I taught myself to spell by uh, having this league table of all these football uh, clubs. So the word source is, don't get bored. Try to always think of something which will keep you, give you animation, give you excitement give you change don't be bored professor moffat thank you very much for having us we hope 2021 will keep you well and we'll speak again soon thank you so much and thank you for inviting me i i feel honored when i look at the other people that you've interviewed i think oh gracious me i feel very much uh, not in at this level uh, at all uh, i uh, i won't say i'm a humble professor no I'm, <laughs> I, I i i i'm not a mover and shaker in the world uh, outside the university but i like to hope that i give hope to my students. Thank you. If this conversation stopped you in your track, share it with your network. You never know whose life you might change for the better. Thank you for listening. Stay curious about our next guest and stay curious about life. <laughs>